House Talk Sports. We're going to start off with some very, very, very sad news today. Yesterday marked 194 days since none of the officers was charged in the death of Breonna Taylor. Today marks 195 days that no charges were brought against the officers that shot Breonna Taylor. Grand jury verdict came out today. Although there was charges filed, it was not for shooting the death of Breonna Taylor. Today I got news. What's up, news? What up, Sue? Happy to see you. Happy to talk to you again, uh, even though it's a sad occasion. And I also got our legal expert, our newly legal expert, <laughs> I'm just joking, <laughs> Sarah. Nice for you to join us today. Hey, Sue. Hey, Nunes. Happy to be here, guys. Hey. First of all, let's just jump straight into it. We always do this, State of America. The State of America at this point, after no charges really brought against for shooting Breonna Taylor. What's you guys' feelings about that? Man, I would say the State of America looks about the fucking same as last time we spoke. I mean, I would like to say that I was surprised, but unfortunately, nothing surprising here. How about you, Sarah? Man, that's the same. Disappointed but not surprised has become the motto of, man, 2015 to present. We keep holding our breath and hoping that they're going to prove us wrong, that there's going to be charges filed, and that something's going to change, and yet every single time the system seems to fail. Or every single time the system seems to function in the way it was meant to. Exactly. Depending on how you look at it. Exactly. Just to be specific, Daniel Cameron, the Attorney General of Kentucky, came out today, announced the charges. I don't even think I ever heard a wanton endangerment until today. I don't know about you guys, but I never heard that. I was shocked. And we want to have you break it down for us, Sarah. What is exactly wanton endangerment? Please let us know. I got you. Yeah, it's not something that people would normally recognize. And when you hear it, it sounds kind of scary. And you're like, hmm, I don't know what this is. In the legal world, it's like a step above negligence, which is basically nothing. So in Kentucky, it's actually a Class D felony. Again, doesn't mean too much. At the minimum, you're looking at a year in prison and a $10,000 fine. We know most people don't serve the full amount, especially in state prisons. So maybe six months, maybe a year. It's not that serious of a charge. The actual definition of it, though, is when someone is guilty of wanton endangerment, it means the person is guilty in the first degree when under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the value of human life, they wantonly engage in conduct, which creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury to another person. I think it's important to note that in this case, the other person that this charge is referring to is not Brianna Taylor and it's not her boyfriend either. The other person is, you know, the drywall that the bullets went through into mm-hmm. the other apartments. It's not a person. It's that, oh, it went into another apartment and maybe a person could have gotten hit, but they didn't. So I think that's especially important to mention because no one today was charged with anything having to do with Brianna Taylor or her boyfriend. They really got no justice at all. No justice at all. And it's, it's a terrible charge. I know when they first announced the news, I had it on CNN. And everyone outside of the court building was outraged. I believe it one African-American lady broke down and started crying 
She talked to the reporter. She said she knew this was going to happen. She knew that there was going to be no charges brought against any of the police officers in the death of Breonna Taylor. And just for them, I think it's very insulting as well for them to even come out and say they're going to make these charges. And it's for shooting into somebody else's apartment. It's not even for the shooting death of Breonna Taylor or for any of the bullets that hit Breonna Taylor. So I just want to know that's completely. that's completely outrageous. And that's just an insult to the black community, not just the black community, anybody that wanted justice in this case, all the leagues, all the uh, individuals out there marching, protesting, even some of the officers who wanted justice. It's just a terrible insult to come out with those charges. What do you think about that, Noon? What do you think about the decision of wanton endangerment? <laughs> well, man, as you guys know, I had no idea what the hell wanton endangerment was. <laughs> Couldn't even pronounce it until earlier today. So got that all figured out. I guess the thing to me that is like the most disappointing is the officer is getting in trouble for actually missing Brianna Taylor in general. He's not even getting in trouble for actually uh, shooting a person. He's getting in trouble for for not shooting a person, essentially. So it seems a little backwards to me. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that in general. When I look at, like, all the, you know, the Black Lives Matters protests and the people who have been killed, I felt like this could have been the one that they used to as, like, a gimme, maybe, to get people off their back, you know, to change the waves. Because it seemed point blank. Like, she didn't even commit a crime. She was just laying in bed. It just felt like the one that they... You know, if you had to sacrifice one, that could be the one that they'd be willing to give up. But now that you see that they did it, I, I hold no hope in any of the charges being brought against any officers involved in anything. Yeah. And he, Daniel Cameron even said that in his press conference. He said he doesn't see any further charges being brought against any of the officers, even though there still is an FBI investigation pending. Just a little, get a little bit more in depth. The officer that was charged was Brett Hankison. He was the one who fired 10 rounds into Breonna Taylor home. And they said it was blind rounds because he ran around a corner and shot through a window. And that window was covered with blinds. The other two officers, Jonathan Mattingly and Miles Cosgrove, were not charged at all and let go scot-free. But I want to get into more of the grand, I would say the attorney's general uh, mindset. Just the whole makeup of how this is set up. How does a grand jury trial work? Sarah, let us know that. Yeah, of course. And of course, you know, this is not legal advice. It's simply, you know, my research and personal experience, right? Definitely, definitely, uh, definitely. Let's, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. disclaimer. <laughs> so the legal realm can confuse a lot of people and rightfully so. We throw a lot of big words in there. We throw a lot of Latin in there. And we make you go to school for a lot of years in order to say that you know what you're doing, basically. And it's to keep out regular people. And it's honestly, a lot of times, it's, it can be used as a shield to keep people from understanding what's going on. Like, for example, with wanton endangerment. That's not a phrase that most regular people on the street would know what it means. So when you have a legal process like this, there's a lot of steps involved. And it's going to depend whether we're going the civil route, which is mentioned a lot in, in Brianna's case because there was a settlement involved and that's completely separate from what's going on in the criminal realm. So those are two totally different processes happening independent of each other. With the criminal realm, which is where we see the grand jury, the grand jury is happening basically in order to bring charges against 
any potential defendants, you can get charged in a multitude of ways. So you're either going to have the prosecutor or the DA, the attorney general, whoever it is, uh, whatever attorney is representing the state, is going to file a complaint, a criminal complaint against you on behalf of the state, or they're going to hold a grand jury, which is in the federal sphere is required for all felonies, which this would have been potentially a felony. So um, it would have been required if it was done under federal law. And the grand jury is just a collection of random people. So, you know, when you get a jury notification in the mail saying you got to go serve on jury duty, it's just a bunch of random folks. You know, they're not specially picked and have a interest in the case. And they essentially sit down and they review all the evidence that's presented to them. And they decide whether there is probable cause, uh, which is the standard, in order to bring charges against the people presented. So... The thing with grand juries is it's, it doesn't function like a normal trial. It's completely secret, and the records are sealed, so there is no public records. There's no way for the public to verify what happened, what was said, what evidence was presented. Um, and this is in part because, one, you don't want the, the jurors' identities to be out there. Um, a lot of times when you're doing grand jury cases, it's cases like this, too. And it's also because the evidence that you can present to grand juries can be inadmissible. It can be obtained illegally. It can be hearsay. Essentially, anything that's not allowed, really, in a regular trial can be brought into a grand jury trial so that the jury has a full scope of what the evidence is. Defendants are not allowed to testify, and they can't call witnesses. So it's simply the state that's putting forth all the evidence. Witnesses that are brought forth by the state cannot have an attorney in the room with them. They can go outside the room to consult with their attorney, but they are not allowed to have an attorney present. And the grand jury, unlike most juries, does not have to be unanimous. It only has to be a majority. Depending on state law, it's different in every state, but usually it's 12 people and it has to be a majority of those 12. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that down to us. A lot of information there. Hope you listeners are really listening to that and how the grand jury works. But I have to say that Daniel Cameron, I know he said he tried this case himself, but there was a lot of questions, I mean cliffhangers that I had that when he was uh, answering questions in his press conference. As you said, you know the grand jury is made up of random individuals. He kept saying that he presented uh, multiple charges and it's up to the grand jury to decide what charge they want to yes. charge the uh, cops wit. Does that make any sense to you? Did it make no sense to me? Yeah, so that's normal. In a normal case, that's how it works. Think about it like this. If I'm trying a defendant, and there's a lot of strategy, too, that goes into deciding what charges you're going to bring, because sometimes maybe the case is a little bit weak, and you're trying to bring murder charges, well, that defendant might walk away scot-free, if the jury is not, if it's not feeling you. So you bring in, you know, some lesser charges, some manslaughter, maybe a reckless endangerment. So that's what happened here in the grand jury. Uh, the grand jury kind of has like full realm to mm. decide what charge they think is available and how they know how to do that is, you know, they get printouts of what the elements are. It's in like a jury verdict form basically. And so they can check the boxes and say, okay, yeah, there was malice, and okay, there was this, and decide what it is they think they have probable cause to charge the defendants with. And so 
in this specific case, what they presented the grand jury with were the options to charge them with murder, first-degree manslaughter, second-degree manslaughter, reckless homicide, and then, of course, the wanton endangerment. And, I mean, they could choose to charge nothing as well. So they could have reviewed the information and said, nah, we're not going to charge anybody with anything. So so what you're telling me is it's 12 regular-ass Joes in there getting presented all this information that could be attained legally, illegally, could be true, could be not true, and then they get to decide when they don't even understand what half the language in there is. That's what I'm trying to understand. Like and a normal jury trial news? Absolutely, yes. And so I will correct you on one point in that it is under oath. Even though it's sealed, it is under oath. So, of course, there's the penalty of perjury. Again, we have no way to verify since we don't know what's being <laughs> no presented. Way as an attorney, we have a duty to be ethical, and there's ethics rules. So if a lawyer is presenting false information that he knows is false, that goes directly against ethics rules. So I would you know, hope and assume that the attorney is following all rules and that he's only presenting things that he thinks or has reason to know is true uh, and has evidence to back that up. But again, we have no way to verify any of this because it's all sealed. And you're correct in that everybody is, you know, an average Joe. I mean, for most, I'll give you a little secret, but when we're picking real juries in real life, there's something called voir dire, and it's the process of choosing the jury. And that's how you eliminate people one by one, and you can have challenges and stuff. And it's how we see people stack juries or try and formulate juries in a way that's going to give them an advantage, basically, in a legal way that's going to give them an advantage. You know, they might see, this is random, but a girl with a a ponytail or a tight bun on the top of her head is some sort of power signal. So she's going to be good for some sort of cases and not good for other cases. She'll be good for one side and not for the other side. A mom with a child is probably going to be good if, you know, a child died in whatever case you're trying. There's a lot of strategy that goes into picking the people that are on a jury. So even though they're regular Joes, they have life experiences that are informing their decisions. You try and weed out overt biases. Um, When someone has an overt bias, they can be taken off. But they're going to have, like we all do, experiences that inform our decisions and the way we think about things, the way that we think about these cases. All those people are regular people, and they read these papers and say, okay, yeah, I think they have this. Uh, I mean, they're going to have a paper that says probable cause means this. Uh, reckless endangerment means this. They, they'll get a list and it's really on them to talk it through and decide, do we have enough? Uh, is this beyond a reasonable doubt? And I, I mean, I've talked with Mitsu about this, so it comes down to a quote-unquote jury of your, your peers, right? When mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, African-American people aren't represented on jurors, right? And like Absolutely. you said, you, have to, you can't have a bias to it. So you better believe the first thing they're going to do is rule out people of color in this jury situation. So, Uh, yeah. That presents a problem in its own to me, I guess. Of course. And there's rules against that. So there's challenges for cause. And that means, like, if there is essentially, say someone's like, I hate cops, for example. That's an easy thing to just put out there. Some people really think that. And it would be common in uh, voir dire to have that come up. If there's going to be a cop as a witness, if there's a cop involved, that's going to be a person that I'm going to challenge for cause because if I'm the state, because they're not going to support my side because they have a bias against cops. If someone is kicked off a jury for, you know, their race, their color, their national origin, their gender, things like that, 
that's not allowed. So we have things called peremptory challenges and you can challenge essentially someone for anything. You don't have to really give a reason. It's just that the reason that's given can't be race, national origin, you know, protected classes like that. So they can't straight up say, I don't want that person because they're black or I don't want that person because they're white or whatever the case may be. They're going to have to word it in a way, even if that's what they're getting at. Like, oh, that person has bad experiences with cops and it's, it's gonna I, it's negatively going to affect this case. Yeah. And so I, there's a way to get around it, but they can't straight up say. Yeah. And <laughs> then they tried to find that out today. It was a reporter who asked a question. Uh, he tried to find out who exactly were the races of the jurors, and he refused to answer that question. He first said he couldn't answer the question for confidential yeah. reasons, and then a reporter actually rebuttal him, saying there's no laws that say you can't release the um, ethnicities or the races of the jurors. But then he, then, uh, Daniel Cameron said that he didn't want to do that for their safety. So he obviously yeah. didn't want to do that for a reason, which is terrible. Yeah. I can see not answering only because it's sealed and it is confidential, but the reporter is right in the sense that there's no law saying you can't uh, release like aggregate information like that is what Mm -hmm. we would call it. Or like de-identified aggregate information because you're not going to find out exactly who was on the jury by saying it it was like four people of, you know, of this race and four people of that race or whatever. But of course, if it went towards one side or the other, it could present a sort of presumption against fairness, uh, yeah. which I'm sure he's trying to avoid. Yeah. It was also interesting how when they asked him about, so when did the grand jury come to the decision? You guys said you presented with evidence on Monday morning. Um, he said they had deliberated and they were back with a verdict before noon. So I find this whole thing, you know, very interesting. There's a lot of, like I said, cliffhangers. But I just want to back up a little bit and go to why don't you think they did not investigate the uh, obtainment of the search warrant? Because I think that's where the most charges could have been brought about. Because a lot of people saying that the officer who actually asked for the uh, no-knock search warrant wasn't the one who was actually on the scene when that uh, warrant was being, you know, carried out so why do you think they didn't in, investigate he wasn't that? there when the shooting was occurring when they yes. were doing he wasn't the there. so that's not required the person okay. who files for it doesn't have to be on the scene i mean sometimes you have someone else file for it it goes to the judge they don't have to be on the scene to serve the warrant per se so for a warrant in general any type of warrant this is not talking about the no knock specifically because for that one there's one extra requirement but for a regular 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 warrant what you need is basically that in order to invade someone's reasonable expectation of privacy, so whether that's a hotel room that they're renting, their house, you know, like some place where a reasonable person would expect privacy from the government, before the government can do that, they need a warrant. And the warrant consists of essentially information that has been procured, however it's been procured. And it's based on probable cause to presume that the things that they're about to search for are actually at the place where they're going to search. And they have to describe those things with some sort of particularity. So uh, I believe this was a drug warrant, they said, or related to some sort of drug charges. Of the the Um, ex-boyfriend, and they believe that that ex-boyfriend was at Breonna Taylor home at the time they carried out the warrant. Exactly. Yeah, and so he, the search warrant, if it was an arrest warrant, that would be different. He would need to be there. But uh, with a search warrant, he doesn't actually need to be there. It's just the owner of the property does or someone who 
can give consent. So say a roommate or someone who pays rent there can give consent to come in the house. If it's an arrest warrant, that's different. Then that person has to be presumed to be on the property and they can't enter without that person being there. Of course, you know, <laughs> excluding any exigent circumstances, but yes. basically uh, after that is given to a judge, the judge grants it. If they, you know, believe that there is a, is probable cause based on what information has been provided to them. So it's not that the judge is out there verifying the information. That's not the judge's duty there. So the judge kind of takes as true essentially what has been collected because the officers have a duty to only put forth, you know, the true information under the law that is their duty. And then the judge decides if that's enough. If it's not, you know, they say I'm not granting it and you need more. If it is, then they grant it. The way no-knock warrants work, or worked, because obviously we know they changed the laws after this. Yeah. So the extra thing that you need for those warrants is that there has to be a reason to avoid knocking and announcing. And that reason is usually that whatever evidence they've described with particularity in their warrant uh, will be destroyed if they have to knock, announce, and wait 10 seconds, or whatever it is that their requirement is in Kentucky. So... To get one of those, especially for that state, is, is not as difficult as it may seem, I guess. Especially if you're searching for drugs, because it's easy to flush. So the quick argument to make to get a no-knock warrant off of searching for drugs is that if I have to knock, immediately they're grabbing the drugs and flushing them, and I no longer have them. Yeah, that's very, very interesting. Just to clarify that they did say it was a valid warrant, even though the officer who asked for the warrant... Uh, may have provided false information to get that warrant. It was signed by a judge, and Daniel Cameron also said that even though it was a no-knock warrant, they did uh, announce themselves as the police. Only one neighbor heard that. Um, there was mm-hmm. one. There was out one, of twelve. Out of twelve, yes, out of twelve. The New York allegedly, journal, yeah. yeah. The New York journalist pointed that out. She said they did their own journalist research. They interviewed people. Twelve people say they did not hear the police announce. Only one yep. neighbor. I heard they self-announced, and that neighbor actually came out. They announced themselves as the police, and then that neighbor went back inside. So they don't know if they announced that to the neighbor or did they announce that to Brianna Taylor and her uh, boyfriend. But tragic situation. It was a valid um, warrant. They entered. Boyfriend shot first. And as Daniel Cameron said, that justified them to be able to shoot back. And that's the justification of the death. Unfortunately, there's a whole lot of laws at play as soon as that happens. It's a more southern state, so which is common in southern states. You have something either called castle doctrine or you have the more broad stand your ground law, which we've seen in Trayvon Martin's case and many others, really. Castle doctrine is like a milder version. It involves your home, so your home is your castle. Um, if someone is, you know, not just sitting at your house or like coming up to your house, but if someone... If you believe someone is intending to do something and you are fearful, you know, you have the right to stand up for yourself and you don't have a duty to retreat. That, depending on which person you ask, there's problems created there or other people will say it creates, you know, extra safety. It depends on who you ask, but that is the law there. So at the outset, you would think that, what is the same, Kenneth Walker, I believe, the Kenneth boyfriend? Walker, Kenneth Walker, uh, the boyfriend, yeah. Yeah, you would think that under Castle Doctrine, you know, if you think someone's breaking into your house you're good to go you can and unload we must we must point out that the gun he fired was his gun it was registered yep. so it was yep. not no illegal firearm let's point that part out as well yep 
So under Castle Doctrine, you would think you're good to go, but the problem is that they were police. And so with police as well, if they have a fear that their life is in danger or that there's going to be great bodily harm, they are able to use deadly force or end force in general. And obviously, if someone's shooting at you, they're, they're going to shoot back. He didn't know by all accounts from him and, and from others that they were police. So he's thinking he's shooting robbers. They're thinking we're shooting whoever we're serving this search warrant on because now they're shooting us. That's where the heart of this case lies. Is, and that's really the sad part is that I've seen a lot of takes on this too. And it's, it's horrible to even think about. But had he not shot there might have been a better chance. There would have been a better chance under the law if they had still done what they did mm-hmm. and if there was no shots fired on his behalf, which I pray for him because, man, I don't know. It's not that it's his fault, but essentially that's kind of what all accounts you know, led to the grand jury deliberating on was that did he know that they announced? Did he know that they were police and then he shot? You know, Are they justified once he shoots? Are they justified in shooting even if they're unloading their entire clip into the house or is that okay and you know from everyone i've looked at and from all the you know the legal experts they all say that it really relies on on the fact that he fired the shot and man i just that that's a tough one yeah and attorney general cameron did say that kenneth walker admitted to firing the first shot. I, we don't know if that evidence is uh, true or not, but like you said, he was on the yeah. oath. He is an attorney, so he has to, you know, um, hopefully he's telling the truth. He said Kenneth Walker did admit to firing the first shot, and that justified officers firing back in. Which, you know, yeah, I saw the same thing, and that he also said that, you know, he thought it was self-defense because he did not know it was yeah. officers at the door. Yeah. He thought that someone was coming in to do something bad yeah. to them. Yeah. Thank um, you for pointing that out. He did, and of yeah. course, as we mentioned other neighbors, not the witness, the one witness that they had, other neighbors did not hear any knocking or announcing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it, it all depends on the evidence presented and the only evidence because we know that they had no body cameras on, even mm-hmm. though body cameras are required when you're serving a search warrant. No one had body cameras. And so the only evidence they had was ballistics, essentially showing that the bullet from his gun went in a certain place and the bullet from the officer's guns went in a certain place. They had 911 calls, they said, police radio traffic, which, take that as you will for reliable evidence. <laughs> Interviews, they of course didn't specify with who, or when, or where, whatever. I mean, they don't have to, so. And then of course, the, the one witness. And a big part of the legal aspect of the case was deciding, or, I mean, for at least legal experts was, hey, is, one, is the single witness sufficient evidence out of however many witnesses there were who one says they heard the knock and announce and the rest say they don't know or they didn't. Yeah. That it does come down to that single witness. That was several questions that the um um that the reporters were asking attorney general. But it came I guess they were they trust that one witness and that was enough to for, to convince them. Go ahead, Noons. Yeah, so I guess like we've talked a lot about times about like policy changes and things of that nature. And obviously, like, in the end, that's not going to bring Breonna Taylor back or even make up for her loss. But so I guess you can't stand still. So what's next then, I guess? Is is it, like, policy changes in getting rid of no-knock warrants and things of that nature? So they that, did that. Is that on the table? Is that completely yeah. done? Like, so they did that. 
an interesting part to, to mention in that is that, especially for a civil suit, you know, obviously that's done, they got their settlement, but you can't use evidence of people changing the law, even if it happened right after something sketchy happened. We call it uh, subsequent remedial measures in the legal world. And that can't be used as evidence that someone's liable. So even though it looks like, hey, you changed the law right after this happened, obviously something was not right with it. Exactly. And is, it can't that, be brought in. Is that something that, that goes nationwide then, or is that just state by state too? Because I'm pretty sure, like, I guess. The I subsequent remember. remedial measures or the no knock warrant? The no knock warrant. Uh, it's state by state. Yeah. So essentially, you know, the way it works is federal and state is separate. Uh, we know that federal is, you know, the supreme law of the land and then yeah. states have the ability to kind of do what they want within reason. The way we describe it in the legal world is that the federal is the floor and you can always create a ceiling. So you can't go lower than the floor. The floor is the absolute minimum. If, if federally they said no knock warrants are not happening, then states could not have no knock warrants. But right now you know they say think about it similar to that ignore that but (laughs) (laughs) if someone says you know you can do this it's the floor and we can decide whether state by state whether that's something we want to subscribe to or whether we want to have higher standards definitely yeah thanks for all this information wonderful information um just to you know move on to the next segment where we go from here guys we see louisville already protesting couple officers were shot tonight in Louisville during protest. We don't know the um, too much information, too many details about that shooting. I did read an article about that right before this podcast took place. What do you guys think? They should have known this was coming. That's why they boarded up, right? I mean, obviously they knew it was coming. They declared a state of emergency a day early. They put up barricades. Like, and so, they, so to me, when I look at something like that, you know what you're about to do is wrong because you're expecting something bad to happen, right? So you know deep down what's about to be announced is incorrect. So that just get, brings me back to like why we even in that situation to begin with. But Amen. I don't know, Missy. We talked a lot about a lot of things for a long time, even before we started recording us talking. I don't know where where we go. I guess at this point, we've talked about some solutions. Um, it'd be nice to know have a win go the other way every once in a while at least you know yeah that this um you know america thought we was moving forward now it seems like we're moving backwards again all the protesting from regular people to nba players to the WNBA, mlb hockey soccer everybody tennis players just NASCAR. protesting we've been hearing about brianna taylor say her name arrest the officers that killed Breonna Taylor, make America arrest the officers that killed Breonna Taylor, the LeBron James hat, and no justice at all. State of America right back in the same position that we talked about a couple of months ago, News. It's the state of America since forever. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know, man. It's, just a, it's not the state of since America. 16, it's just America. 19. Since 1619, yep. right? It's just America. Mm-hmm. As, Where as, were the All Lives Matter people back then, huh? Man. <laughs> well, where are they right now for Breonna Taylor, man? That life has to matter Real. a little bit, right? Exactly, right? Uh, from, from, a legal, from a legal perspective, what do you think we've got to do, Sarah? Like, Not to put you on a spot right now, but if you, <laughs> if, you, if you had like one or two takes of what we can do right now yeah. legally, besides go vote and get all these attorney generals out of office, yeah. get all these senators out so, of office. 
something that people who are not in the legal field can do right away is, I mean, obviously is to organize, but, and march and, and do what you honestly do what you need to do for your mental health too, because seeing this shit every day and depending on who you are, it affects you differently too, because when you see yourself in that person, that's different. That's a different type of pain. And I can't even imagine that. So first and foremost, people need to make sure they're focusing on their mental health and doing what they need to do to keep their health okay and to process things because it's it, it's not easy and I don't know if it will ever be easy and it really shouldn't be for the kind of stuff that we're seeing. Then of course, march, organize uh, and do what you need to do in the streets. And then something you can do on on a case-by-case basis is, is really research the a lot of times we go into the voting booths or we fill out our mail-in ballot, which I've been doing for California, but recently switched to Florida because <laughs> they need some help. Man, you guys got a big we, Senate race coming up too. Yeah. We do this thing called like down ballot voting where, uh, or party, party voting where it's just, you know, you vote dem, 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 or you don't even research who it is that you're voting for. And especially for local elections mm-hmm. or for state elections, this is so important. Federally, it's a little different. That's a different story. But think about the people that we're putting into power. Daniel Cameron, he's elected. Yes. He wasn't appointed. That man was elected by the people in his community, whether they knew him or not, whether they just recognized his name, however he got in. We don't know how many votes he got. You can look it up. But he was elected. And so how do you get those people out? How do you get people who care about everybody's life in? And it's through voting and it's through organizing. It's through... I mean, you can send money to those local campaigns. They're not funded as well as, you know, as the big national campaigns that we see, you know, for presidential races. And you can really research who you're putting in. People are going to tell you a lot of things when they run for office. And the best way to figure out what they're really about is by looking at their record. So for prosecutors, for people who are attorney general, for the DAs, for the public defenders, you, you can go look at their record. You can look at the cases they've tried. You can look at the cases they let go through their office and stuff like that. You can see how they treat, you know, stand your ground laws, depending on who the defendant is. Those are things that are public record that you can research. It takes time. It's, it's consuming. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's resources out there that might, you know, digest it a little bit better for everyone. But those are things we can do like right away. We obviously have an election coming up and those le- local elections will be taking place. There will be judges who are up for re-election. There will be uh, attorney generals. There will be DAs. A lot of things that we look for in in prosecutors, at least, is is this thing called a progressive prosecutor. Mm -hmm. And it's different than, you know, the old school, we're charging every case. Someone made a joke once that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, which means they literally could indict anybody for Mm -hmm. anything. And it's up to the prosecutor to decide whether they're going to bring that case through. So right now, like Daniel Cameron doesn't have to bring this case through if he doesn't want to. He can dismiss it voluntarily. He said he was going to bring um, it through. He said he's going to personally prosecute him himself. So we'll see. We have to wait and see on that. I see mm-hmm. Nooney over there rolling his eyes. <laughs> watch a plea deal. Yeah, watch a plea deal. Oh, come my out. gosh. Oh, my gosh. I mean, only 3% of cases go to trial. So they a lot of times people are pleading out, and people are pleading out because they don't want the book thrown at them at trial. Mm-hmm. And those are things you can look at. You know, you can look at what what prosecutors are seeking when they're charging people. African Amer- African sure Americans know all about that, right? Taking plea deals. Yeah, I mean, right? <laughs> oh my we, we can be educated when we're voting instead of just being like, oh, okay, same party as me. All right, that person's in because you don't know if they're really supporting you. 
And a lot of times for the local elections, you will have multiple people from multiple parties who are running. And it, it's a lot easier to get somebody in than you think. That's crazy. That's crazy. I know that um, last time NBA decided to boycott, NFL players decided to boycott when the, when the shooting of Jacob Blake. There was no boycotting today. The Heat did play Boston Celtics. You see that any, any of that in the future due to this decision, Nunes? I don't see it happening right now. Um, it, it didn't work. I mean, I don't know what the next step is. I don't. Mm-hmm. I, I guess at this point, it's more of like they already got what they wanted out of it. They're getting the opportunities. The the owners are turning stadiums into polling places and things of that nature. So they got what they wanted from the boycott. You can't keep going to that well over and over again. It's mm-hmm. now using what you got from the boycott to take the next steps. And so. That's not something that happens overnight, and that's not going to change the decision that happened with Breonna Taylor, but it could change the decision what happens to whoever's next because you know it's inevitable at this point. Right, right. Great podcast, great information, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for the legal insight, breaking it all down for us. Any last words? Any last words? My last word is disgusted. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so disgusted with the verdict today. It made absolutely no sense that you're going to charge the officer for shooting into somebody else's apartment but not shooting into Brianna Taylor's apartment. That makes no sense to me at all. I'm not on a legal yeah. team. So I'm going to just end it there. Any last words, guys? Yeah. No, I agree with you. I think they would have been – maybe they went for the looks of it. Like they thought they could get away with saying one of the officers received charges. I'm happy that there's newspapers and media sources out there that are reporting correctly that nobody was charged for the killing of Breonna Taylor and that the charges relate to something else that happened. I mean, at that point, I think it's, I think that you're just being disrespectful and you're throwing that back in the family's face. You're better off not charging anything. (laughs) Obviously it's not in that moment. It's the grand jury's decision and they're regular people. They're going to do what they do, but you're better off not going after him. If that's what you're going to give him. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you guys. Very disrespectful. Thank you guys for joining me. Thank you guys for the insight. Thank you for your voices. People, please go vote. Let's change things. Let's, like Sarah said, vote for your attorney general. Vote for your judges. Vote for city council members. Please, it's a big election year. Couch Talk Sports.